Welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Michael Neal, and I work at a school in Tennessee called Vanderbilt University. It's basically my job to learn with and from some of the most thoughtful, ambitious, and impactful individuals who have come through Vanderbilt's leadership and learning in organizations doctoral program. Before earning a doctorate, these leaders partner with an organization, conduct a research project in that organization, and offer evidence-based recommendations that make a positive impact. We call this a capstone project. This is a show about how some of the most dynamic capstones were constructed and carried out, and the particular pivot points that made the project, but could have broken it. To fight for civil rights and to make a more equitable society, we have to start attacking, um, and I don't mean attacking as in, well, no, I do, dismantling the systems that have prevented um, individuals like me from being included. Um, we have to be willing to stand up and not just stand up by ourselves. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Leonard Richards, who worked with the large public college of education on his capstone project. Leonard had to navigate some challenging dynamics as someone who is both an insider and an outsider at the college, and as someone who was asked to investigate longstanding problems of racial underrepresentation in this predominantly white institution. Let's get to Leonard's interview for more. Hey, Leonard, let's just start off with who you are and what you do. Hey, my name is uh, Dr. Leonard L. Richards, Jr., uh, currently working in the College of Education as a uh, social studies pedagogical professor. Dr. Leonard Richards, so great to have you. And uh, why don't we just, why don't we kind of start with, um, with what made you want to, what made you want to pursue a doctorate in the first place? Sure. So I was in a predicament in terms of my job, my, um, I was teaching uh, in a school, a uh, high school in um, the Shenandoah Valley, and I've been teaching there for, well, I started looking at the doctorate around five years. And so I wanted to keep my options open. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to go with that degree route rather than just getting a certificate within one year yep. and then, you know, staying in the Shenandoah Valley to teach or and then wait for a principal job to open up. And, you know, a lot of that came with the work that I did with my paper. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the work that I did with my paper, um, you know, really opened up a lot of avenues that I was not expecting um, to happen. Uh, which was interesting. Yes. And for people who don't know uh, Virginia, don't know the Shenandoah Valley, give us kind of a sense of what what is the, like, what's the Shenandoah Valley? Like if people have in their mind kind of Northern Virginia up around DC, right? That's not the Shenandoah Valley. So tell us <laughs> no. a little bit about the Shenandoah Valley and also your roots there. And I ended up in Harrisonburg and, and in the Shenandoah Valley um, region because I went to school at JMU. I went to school at James Madison University. And to undergrad. As an undergrad, yep. yes, as an undergrad. And so when I started there as an undergrad, fell in love with the place. Mm. When you look at the Shenandoah Valley compared to other parts of Virginia, it is a very rural place. Mm -hmm. um, the demographics tend to reflect a very, um, a very rural demographic, very white demographic. Mm -hmm. There's not many African Americans, um, in, in this area. There's not many, um, uh, Hispanic Americans or Asian Americans in that region as a whole. However, what makes Harrisonburg unique is that all the things I just said that the Valley doesn't have a lot of, Harrisonburg does. We also have a very large refugee population um, that exists as well. So you have the refu a refugee population um, that exists and they have come into this area and have brought their cultures. Mm -hmm. 
um, their language, and it's reflective in the school. Mm -hmm. So Harrisonburg, for example, Harrisonburg High School, there are over 50 different languages spoken mm -hmm. um, or rep represented in this in the student body, which yeah. is wow. amazing. <laughs> right, uh, especially yeah. relative to the region. I mean, that's incredible. Right, yeah. right, right, relative to the region. And yeah, Harrisonburg, although um, predominantly white, it does have a good African-American, a good-sized African-American population compared to other places mm -hmm. within the valley. Uh, and that has a lot of history behind it that I explored a little bit in my paper. Uh, give us the helicopter ride over your project um, from kind of problem to recommendations. Uh, yeah. So JMU, essentially, is a school that has um, not a hidden curriculum, but a hidden history. And this story was really in the background to how recruitment and hiring was done um, for several years. Once and you're talking faculty occurred. recruitment and hiring. And I'm talking about faculty, yes, faculty recruitment, um, faculty recruitment in the College of Ed. But honestly, I mean, they go hand in hand, faculty recruitment as well as student recruitment. Mm -hmm. When we talk about faculty of color, students of color, mm -hmm. um, they, they tend to go hand in hand. And so hiring and recruitment was always, uh, I would say, since integration occurred was always an issue that JMU as an institution had to deal with, had to um, think of ways in which they had to improve. First, it was you needed to improve because the government was telling you you needed to improve, right? Laws were changing. <laughs> so state governments, of course, were being defiant with federal laws at the time, um, you know, during the 50s and 60s. And then you start to see this changeover where it was like you once you start reaching certain quotas, now things that now you're on the right side of history, quote unquote, mm -hmm. you're on the right side of history. So you had this change that was emerging. However, within certain um, pockets of the university, particularly in the education part of the university, the, the College of Education, those numbers changed, but very slightly. Mm. And it wasn't and in terms of African-Americans, especially it wasn't a large, impactful change. And so the college has still been aiming to um, increase the faculty of color presence mm -hmm. here on the campuses, particularly in the College of Education, mm -hmm. where Jamie started, right. essentially. And so that was basically the, the problem that you were taking on, is that the yes. college said, look, we have and have always had this problem, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I didn't really understand. The, the interesting thing was that as a student, so I was a person that was a student in this mm -hmm. college as well. So mm -hmm. I got the student aspect and then I'm getting, of course, the faculty aspect being here now. But, um, you know, I was always asking that question, like, you know, I'm, I'm in the College of Education. Not only am I the only student that looks like me, but I'm the only person I see that looks like me, mm -hmm. even from the, you know, the teacher aspect. I don't see me represented yeah. or even a lot of Latin American students represented. So this so was as an undergrad, that? you're thinking this. Yes. Yep. So like when you went to, when you came to JMU and asked like, Hey, I want to do this. You know, I want to do a project with you all. Um, was this the project they had in mind or were you like, Hey, I think y'all need to work on this. <laughs> yes. So it was, it was kind of both, uh -huh. right? It was, it was both. So, you know, I, I came there and I was like, you know, I wanted to, talk to you all or at least propose, um, 
you know, just something that I saw when I was an undergrad, when I was a graduate student there, um, just to kind of address the lack of hiring recruitment um, of faculty of color. And, you know, I ended up contacting the dean. That's how I was able to reach Did you out know to the dean already or were you kind of coming no. in? Yeah, okay. I did not know. And, and, and he was relatively new to the school as well. And um, there are other people in the building as well. And of course, not only did I work with the I worked with the College of Education as an institution, but I also worked with the old school alumni group, mm. which was a um, group of African-American um, alumni from JMU who also had those same questions and concerns. Mm. And they weren't just looking at it from the, you know, the um, faculty perspective. They were also looking at it from the student perspective. Say a little more about what that old school group is, um, sure. both what they are and how you got connected with them. Sure. So there are a group of students who um, they have several different students or former students, former students, former students. And and these are like former students who some of them graduated in like the 80s. Um, Some of them graduated in the early 90s, Um, might even been even earlier that earlier than that um, uh, in the 70s. So these really are old school. Yeah, these are (laughs) old school. Yes, yes, yes. And, And they are very proud of that fact because, you know, when they went to Madison, um, then it was Madison College. Mm. When they went there, you know, they were some of the few faces that you saw of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were, you know, there during the height of, you know, they were, it was just after integration. The effect that they've had and how they've started, um, they wanted to see, they wanted to see more action done mm. across campus. Mm. And so they have, they have, um, connections with other professors, with deans across campus. They've been trying to work with other people that have that are in positions of power that can begin to move us in a path um, where there is more diversity, true, true diversity, equity and inclusion, mm-hmm. um, not just one offs. That's actually a good point to to talk about the problem and the way you conceptualized it. Um because I think, you know, somebody could come at this in a kind of technocratic, like our problem is diversity. We just need to get some more, you know, black and brown faces in here. Um, but you decided to you decided to take up critical theory and a particular approach to critical theory to to guide this project. And I'm wondering if you can tell us some about how you framed the project conceptually, why you did that. Sure. I wanted this project to be one in which it was not, how do I say this? It was not to be, this is what JMU has done, the end, right? Mm -hmm. Or this is what JMU has planned to do about diversity. Let's see if they get there. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I wanted this to be a critical paper. I wanted this to be a study that was not just going to look at how there's not enough BIPOC or Black Indigenous people of color in um, the faculty, but why that is. Mm. And looking further into policies, programs, and practices that have led to this issue. Because it's not just that African Americans don't want to come here or Latin Americans don't want to come here. It's the question of, do we feel welcome when when we are on this campus? Do we see us already present on this campus? And what is it is JMU's history? What is the history of JMU of other PWIs? Because I mean, although this study focused on one PWI, 
this is, uh, you know, JMU is reflective of many other PWIs in this state, many other PWIs in this country. Let's take a quick break. This is Pivot Point, and I'm Michael Neal. Welcome back to Pivot Point. When we left off, Leonard Richards was describing the way he used critical theory to direct his Capstone project. Let's get back to the interview. And so I decided to look at it from a critical race, um, a critical first, a critical pragmatist perspective. Um, so not just looking at there's so much racism on the campus or there's so much inequality, systemic um, inequalities on the campus, but also now that we see that there's so much um, systemic issues on this campus, what are we going to do to change it? How can we change this? How can we be intentional about fixing the issues of the lack of diversity, the lack of um, equity inside of a program mm. and making sure that we look at the people who are making these decisions. So it's not JMU, it's institutions within JMU. It's um, people who are making decisions within JMU that's stopping um, or hindering the progress through policies, programs, and practices that they've um, instituted as a whole. Yeah, and I, it actually might be a good time to say a little bit more about critical theory and critical race theory in particular. The critical race theory and the aspects of critical race theory, the counter storytelling, the one that I focused on a lot was the interest convergence, um, that piece where are we doing this because we want to be intentional and we want to recognize this privilege and we want to dismantle these privileges? Or are we creating these organizations, the fellowship um, committees, the the um, increase of faculty of color because in some way it's going to benefit us as white individuals or people of power in this institution. And that's what interest convergence really talks about. Yeah, like it only so actually happens if, if there's an interest for white people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If we can benefit, okay, now we can add you in, right? It's like, let's see. It, it's, it's, I mean, essentially, if we, you know, we keep going back to the Jim Crow piece, if we're talking about integration, the only reason why integration, um, you can make the argument that the only reason why integration really existed in this country was because of this interest convergence piece. Because, I mean, in actuality, we were already really integrated. It was just powers were not integrated and systems were not integrated. And so you had people at the top and people at the bottom. And to be honest, we still have that going on today, of course. And that's still reflective even at the university level. Mm -hmm. If you start looking at how diverse um, the uh, Board of Visitors is compared to, you know, um, the faculty, <laughs> you'll realize that there's not too many of us making the decisions on whether or not People of color get tenured mm -hmm. here. Those are the types of things that critical race theory is, particularly in my paper did, was to address that JMU does have a culture and that culture uh, has a culture of racism and that culture of racism or white hegemony, white supremacy um, is still very much alive. And it may not be as blunt as seeing, you know, names of certain halls um, being, you know, um, named after uh, Confederate generals. But it might be based on the practices. Where are we looking for recruits? Are we looking at Duke and are we looking at Duke on the same tier or are we looking at Howard University on the same tier as we're looking at Duke? Mm -hmm. Are we looking at um, East Tennessee State University on the same way we're looking at Vanderbilt University? Right. Mm -hmm. How are we how are we measuring who's 
worthy enough to be a part of faculty and who is not. Mm. Um, and, and how does that play a role? And I think, um, or what I found was that um, even within these institutions, there's this game that's played um, with people that are higher up past the dean, past, you know, the provost, um, higher up who tend to make decisions that are based on old ways of thinking. Yeah, the, like the way we do things here is the way we've been right. doing things here. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's no need to change it. And even if we were to change it, we're going. We're only going to change it until you know our interests meet. Mm. Um, again, going back to that critical theory uh, perspective, and uh, there's just there's so many there were so many different ways that I could have taken this um, paper. I decided to go in that critical perspective because I wanted to get answers. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the really interesting things to me about your project is that it, like, you know, you're, you're working with this these folks. You're working with this client. It's, you're not just doing a, an academic paper where you kind of swoop in and do your research and then step out and say whatever you want to say, right? At the end of the day, yeah. you were coming back to these folks that were depending on you to help them, help help them yes. address this, right? And so, yes. you like, talk about how you kind of navigated that tension between you've got people that are depending on you Mm -hmm. um, to help them walk through this and you have some like hard stuff to say. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, being an alumni of JMU, I care about this place deeply. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I'm still in Harrisonburg. So it was easy for me to flirt that line of I'm going to be critical, but do so from what Barb um, Stingle talks about as um, coming at it from the aspect of love, mm. <laughs> right? Coming at it from the aspect of, yes, there are some issues here. And here is a pathway in which we can fix those issues. Um, but there's also an understanding that it can't just be a one and done situation. This is something that needs to be ongoing, right? You're a little bit more Southern than I am, but we both grew up in the South. I still, you know, I consider myself Southern, right? And so, you know, I live, we lived in an area of where Jim Crow is still very much present in this country. We call it Jim Crow Mm -hmm. 2.0, disruption to voter rolls. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to, you know, walk outside your house one day and you're driving and you see, you know, a person on a bird scooter with a big Confederate flag jacket. Mm. It's not uncommon to see that where I live. Mm. Um, however, you know, we look at the symbols and it's not to say that we should not fight against those types of symbols. But if we're also not willing to fight against the systemic issues that created those mm. things, mm. then we're only doing only a, a small bit of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And as a person of color, to get us to the next level, to get us to a better footing, um, to fight for civil rights and to make a more equitable society, we have to start attacking. Um, and I don't mean attacking as in, well, no, I do. Dismantling the systems that have prevented um, individuals like me from being included. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be willing to stand up and not just stand up by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so that's your project. I mean, that that's really yeah. what your project is about. Is like within the College of Education, um, focusing on faculty hiring in particular, or recruitment and hiring in particular. And you, it sounds like you had a, a group of people at the table who were up for the work, at least said they yes. were, and and showed up in ways that suggested they were. So, talk yes. a little bit about how you decided to uh, go at this investigation in terms of what data you sure. needed to inform. Um, 
understanding the problem better? I started to look for people that were in leadership roles. So I started to look at the vice provost. Um, I started looking at um, the directors for diversity, equity, and inclusion here on the campus. Any person that I believed um, would have some kind of raw data that could show increases or decreases of faculty of color within the building. And so that was the initial thing was to to understand what has been kind of the pattern of uh, hiring and recruitment over time. Yes. And when you started to look into the papers, like when I started to, because one of the tracks that it led me to wasn't just interviewing colleagues um, who, before they were colleagues, professors of mine um, of color who existed here or people that um, decided to um, join up for this study um, within the College of Ed. Um, I started to look back at old papers. So the school has a paper called The Breeze. I started looking at old articles of The Breeze and I started to realize, wait a minute, this diversity, equity, and inclusion piece here when it comes to faculty recruitment has been a story for a very long time. This is not a new problem. <laughs> this isn't a new problem. So, you know, you know, as starting off as someone who's just doing this work, I'm thinking like, you know, this is a new problem. This has never been addressed. I started going back into articles back in this, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. They talked about this already. And so that, um, you know, asking around and, and talking to individuals um, that were already in that were already a part of equity um, organizations on campus. That was my first start. They led me to um, that. They led me to a lot of the background information about the history of the school, the data that it persists today. And then I started asking um, colleagues, um, now people that are colleagues, what their experiences were mm. as faculty of color um, in this building. And so those who participated in that study um, were very open about. Um, you know, what they had experienced, um, what kind of things that, um, you know, they had to not so much um, then they themselves had to go through, but other people around them had to go through. And it was beautiful that they were vulnerable enough to share that information with me. And again, being a, a, a graduate from JMU, uh, that definitely, I think, helped um, a bit. So I'm glad that that um, in I terms of access. Yeah, in yeah. terms of access, yes, that helped a, a lot. Um, but also going over the stuff with them, so sending, of course, the transcripts and stuff to them and, and making sure that they were comfortable with what was said. Everyone was very much um, welcoming uh, to, to, to tell those stories. And, you know, that fit right in with the, with the critical race mm-hmm. counter storytelling piece. Mm-hmm. These are stories you oftentimes won't hear unless you ask about them. So talk about like what that added, the the storytelling, the counter storytelling of BIPOC faculty at JMU, because you had, right, you're like, I can look at these patterns uh, of hiring, um, in some ways, recruitment, retention over time. I can look at the history of this place as in terms of like, these are not, this is not a new problem, right? And you access this data. The The interviews with BIPOC faculty in the College of Education and what you're calling counter storytelling, talk about how that fit into this not being a new problem and this that having to be part of what informed the direction of, of your project. 
So I consider those interviews to be the missing link mm. that links this whole piece together, this, this whole story together from the historical pieces that Madison um, was founded on. Right. And and again, like I like, you know, we've talked about before, I had more than enough data. I had wait, I had enough data to make probably do two capstones. <laughs> um, honestly, I had, I had enough data to do two two capstones once I added in the historical background pieces together. But the interviews, what the interviews did was explain why um, certain African American or Latin American um, uh, professors were staying at this university, um, what was keeping them there but also some experiences that they were dealing with that were not too uncommon that people of color were experiencing all the way back into the 70s. In some ways, it sounds like that's a lot of what the work was, was like, mm-hmm. you got nice, I mean, there, it sounds like the college is more diverse than it than it ever has been, maybe, but you, yeah. you got nice, liberal white people who are still, you know, living and breathing the air of, of white supremacy. It's like, that's part of the findings you were bringing, right? Talk talk a little bit about the findings. When I started to examine, for example, examples of white hegemony that existed. And I started talking to colleagues, some of the things that they told me were the microaggressions that they experienced in this very white liberal progressive school. Um, And I don't know if those individuals were conservative or liberal who were making these statements and stuff, of course, but it exists. And they talked about that, that burden. There was also when I talked to some of my um, BIPOC or some, excuse me, some of my um, Latin American professors who interviewed um, my my interviewees there. They talked about the ability um, or the burden to pass. So when diversity, equity, inclusion programs or initiatives were created, there was this. This section of people who felt isolated Mm. that it that it was just geared towards people who of color that you could could you could clearly see were black mm-hmm. or brown mm-hmm. right but there are people that are passing who also um, are members or people of color um, who are able to not show by skin color that they are persons of color but they are persons of color and so having the having the um, uh, burden to have to pass and not and kind of hide your identity uh, for the sake of acceptance. Mm. That was something that was also talked about. And can you just kind of define what what does that mean, passing? Uh, sure. Yeah. So passing is referring to someone, um, particularly a person of color, who is able to pass for white. Mm-hmm. So someone who is able to, um, by complexion, be seen as a white person mm-hmm. or overlooked for their um, racial or cultural features, just based on skin tone mm-hmm. alone. The, the first bit was this reality of... Um, that even in this very progressive institution, all of these folks had many stories of microaggressions that Correct. were going on all the time, <laughs> right? And, Correct, and, yes. and then the second piece was this idea of, or uh, this idea of passing that emerged. Mm-hmm. Even though you see me, you can hear me and I have that accent, it, before I talk to you, you could probably walk right past me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a person of color who's clear, you know, clearly in their skin tone could not. And, but again, and again, it goes, it just goes to this reality that like, it's one thing to say, Hey, white supremacy exists here. It's another thing to say, look, here is a process by which white supremacy is functioning here. Right. Which is right. what you're doing by raising this narrative of passing that you're hearing from the faculty. 
Yes. Yep. And, and, you know, again, to tie back to the things that we've seen this summer or, or, you know, this past summer, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people were jumping on, of course, the Black Lives Matter train, right? Because the, the media, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing at all. I'm saying that I think looking at this from a, from a critical lens, make sure that you are holding individuals accountable, um, that need to be held accountable inside of an organization. Um, it's needed. And it, I, I mean, it, it really, it, it, gives you it sounds like it gave you the tools to come into an academic institution people who like uh you know pride themselves on a set of values that supposedly already employ equity diversity and inclusion uh-huh. right and to be able to help them like parse out and point yeah. out these things that are going on is like that's that's the work and it's it's hard right. work and you really can't do it without these critical tools it sounds like Yes, you can't. You can't. And and that those critical tools allow for me to look at the I mean, the whole history of Madison is just out there. Um, and, and there's this book called um, Madison, the first 50 years. And like you can check it out from the library. It's all public knowledge. That's why I feel so comfortable with talking about this stuff, because it's all there. It's nothing hidden. There is this system that was in place. This system has disrupted so much um, at PWIs because they were founded on that system. Um, and now when you start to see demographics change and you start to see people of color stepping up and saying, ah, wait a minute, I do have a say in this university. Now that's when you start to see the arguments. That's when you start to see, um, you know, the complaints. And that's when you start to see people willing to fight to keep the tradition alive. And if they're not going to keep it alive through their symbols, they will keep it alive through their systems. Mm-hmm. They'll keep it alive through their policies, their programs, their practices that are going to prevent people um, or to prevent um, individuals from benefiting from the same privileges that they themselves benefit mm-hmm. from. Until it converges with, with my Until interests. it converges, yes. exactly. Yep. And so, okay, you talked about uh, highlighting the microaggressions. You talked about the... Um, yeah, the passing. Uh, was there another? Was there another important piece that came out of the findings? Or yeah, sure. Yeah. So there were also ways in which um, that there were also ways that they could mediate. So the university itself, or not the university, not just the university, but members of leadership within the university and members of leadership within the College of Education could mediate the impact of white hegemony. Mm. Right. So out of those findings, it was working with HBCUs like they've been currently doing um, and increasing that work. You also found it with recruiting. When people told you about yeah. how they were recruited to the college, it mattered who was on the committee. Am I remembering yes. that right? Yes, yeah. yes. And so, um, again, many of the people who were recruited, uh, well, when they were recruited, they were recruited either within the university, like they ended up, like one of the persons that I, that I talked to, they were recruited for athletics. Like they were a student like I was. So they went through a program like I did. Um, and then all of a sudden doors opened up, they started teaching here and then they ended up becoming um, a part of the university. But then there are other people who were recruited and they were recruited. Honestly, they, and I would argue that they weren't recruited. They were, they saw the, um, job posted on, you know, job links or it was published, it was published inside higher ed. Yeah. in those types of, of, um, areas. And so it's not really intentional. It's not that you're posting these jobs on the journal of African-American, 
um, history. It's not that you're posting on um, um, any of the uh, minority serving um, journals. One of the one of the individuals said um, that I interviewed. He was he was in the um, leadership role. He said it would be much people feel much more valued when they are being recruited rather than you recruiting like those individuals recruiting your university, mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, someone feels much more valued when they are saying, yes, I want you, please. Let me show you around our university. Let me show you around our campus. Mm. Rather than you going on a job link post and trying to find a job, for example, and then trying to you know prove your worth when you get here in the interview process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think JMU um, and other PWIs that are wanting to do this work have to be intentional about how they recruit people, what they need to um, do to bring them here, and also be honest about what is here. Be honest about your statistics. Be honest about your history. Mm-hmm. Be honest about about your story. Don't sugarcoat um, and don't try to you know pretend that it's something that it's not. And that was some of the recommendations. Is just like step yes. into the reality of what this is and yeah. and tell people that this is a problem we have that we're working on and absolutely and other pieces in terms of what you told them what's next right the critical pragmatism it, it's like all right so we're all responsible what's next mm-hmm. like it, other pieces we haven't touched on in terms of what you suggested they work on yeah it was it was mostly the continuing or the continuous networking um, with BIPOC individuals mm-hmm. and organizations. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest. Like not just when you have a job, right? That like Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Not just when you have a job. Like anybody can communicate with, with someone when the job opening is mm-hmm. there, right? But stay in contact mm-hmm. with these individuals. There needs to be a connection. There needs to be a connection that's twofold. One is connecting a connection that is made throughout universities, in the surrounding areas or however far they wanted to extend that from university to university, but also inner community, connecting the university right down the street um, into Main Street and, and across uh, campus to get people connected to Madison, especially people of color who are who are desperately needed. Um, their presence are desperately needed and not just their presence. I want to be clear, not just their presence, but their ideas. Well, I think it goes to the the quality of your work, the the quality of the relationships that you built. Uh, they liked the project so much they hired you. <laughs> right? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. And that was so. Talk I mean, a that little was bit unexpected. about like you're yeah. you're on faculty now, so you're you you know you're actually you're you're involved in the, like now you're in. Ended up joining a fellowship. That's how I was able to get into the university mm-hmm. was through a fellowship opportunity, and then contingent on if I finished my doctorate, which I did, um, I was able to sign on as a tenure faculty member. Um, for the for the upcoming school, and just to be clear, you were not in this relationship when we started this project. Yep. No, mm-hmm. was not right. was not in this relationship uh, before starting. So I was still working at uh, Waynesboro High School mm-hmm. then, and this opportunity just came up after talking with the dean. Had I not have made that call to the dean, I would not be sitting in this office mm-hmm. right now. And that's the crazy thing. You know, the beautiful thing is that you know we have our own faculty of color um, at the school, particularly the African American. Um, Faculty, we've, we've been getting together a lot and we have our own affinity groups, mm-hmm. not just here, but I was, I was able to join a, an affinity group um, across campus as well um, with, with black men. Mm-hmm. And that has been wonderful. And so there are people at this school that are willing to do the work. 
Um, we have allies, white allies at this school that are willing to do the work. Now that they've admitted that they're willing to do the work, I'm waiting to see. Um, and, and I'm still keeping my eyes out on if they are sincere mm -hmm. about doing the work. Mm -hmm. If we're going to do this work, it needs to be done all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, now we are living in a world where we need that desperately. Mm -hmm. We can't just have, um, you know, people that are saying they support you in name only. Mm -hmm. We want to see action now. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm still, I'm still keeping my eye out. Um, I'm not letting my, my guard, um, I'm not putting my guard down uh, on, on this you know, issue yep. of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I want to stay, you know, more connected with uh, the powers that be in this college, but also the powers that be on main campus. Yep. Well, uh, it has been such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for making time for this. All right. No problem. It's always a pleasure. Beyond being dynamic and important for JMU's College of Education, Leonard's project demonstrates the unique nature of this capstone work. He was both an insider and an outsider in different ways at JMU, and he found in critical pragmatism of Eddie Glaude and Barb Stengel the kind of approach and framing that allowed him to bring together the past and present in a way that charted a more responsible future for the college. A huge thank you to the guests who make this show something worth listening to. Thanks to Peter Shellman for editing, mixing, and tech support. This podcast was made possible in part by a grant from Peabody College Dean's Office, for which I'm certainly grateful. Thanks also to the Capstone Partner Organizations, the hardworking Capstone Advisors, and Program Director Eve Rifkin, all of whom make these projects happen. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to like, review, and share this podcast because that's the way other people are going to find it. All right. I'll see you next time, folks. I'm Michael Neal, and this is Pivot Point.